Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? What's up, Mr. Mark Vanderwall? Thanks for joining me for another session of Reef Therapy. I dig your t-shirt, man. Oh, thank you very much. We'll have to we'll have to get you. We'll have to get you one if you if you know the right people, we might be able to sort it out. I got a gray one, but the but the black one's pretty cool. Very I like that. Cool. Well, we um you know, without further ado, we're going to just jump right in. This was a topic that you kind of spearheaded, um, kind of our notes and in the background. So why don't you tell the listeners and viewers what it is we are going to uh, discuss in today's session? Yeah. So, you know, there's always talk about, uh, um, you know, when we talk about reef keeping and recommendations and, you know, tools and additives and a lot of it rests on anecdotal observations, right? Um, which being a very visual reef keeper, you know, I can respect, but um, I, you know, something that I've pondered about a lot is, you know, some of these questions that I have, if I had, let's just say hypothetically, the budget, the means, the time, the space, what are some of those things that I would love to take out of the anecdotal zone and actually either run some experiments, run some tests, do some data-driven things and actually come up with some answers on. Um, some of it is just, you know, things that people always talk about and just say, well, this is true. And I'm like, well, is it? <laughs> uh, other stuff is more, um, not, not, it doesn't originate out of distrust, but it's like, I'm being told or marketed that something works a certain way, but I'd love to validate that. You know, I'd love to have some type of independent lab certified, hey, yep, that's how this thing works. So so it's more like if, if we had, um, you know, if I was a billionaire <laughs> and I didn't have to work and I had a big old space kind of like what you do to, you know, do my reef keeping in, a larger sense or a larger space, like what are the, some of the things that I would love to find answers to that I think would a lot of people would probably feel the same way about. Yeah, so. no, I think uh, in a roundabout way, what you're trying to say is like, what could we verify with science or at least some degree of verifiable testing, you know, because like you said, we, a lot of manufacturers come at us with so many claims. I mean, every, Reef Aquarium Light Package says it's the best light. Every protein skimmer just, I mean, and now it's just gotten so hyperbolic in our marketing culture that you just write best. You just write best on everything you have, right? The food, the additive, the skimmer, the light, the pump, and then worry about any kind of uh, tangible uh, metrics to compare it to other things. You know, and I feel like, and you, and I'm not even, this is not even exclusive to aquariums, but I mean, you're talking about, I don't know, face creams and disinfectants and car gasoline fuel computers. You just, you, I mean, first line, best, just best. Yeah. And sometimes it boils down to, uh, the most po popular or widely used product is the one with the best marketing. Right. But mm -hmm. when, when you do see cases in other, other industries or other hobbies, sometimes it's surprising that it's like the underdog that when when actual testing occurs is the winner. Right. Is the is the better product? Well, I mean, any, any company only has a given num amount of resources. Right. 
And just like, you know, uh, running for uh, Congress or, or president, it's not a verifiable like who's best it's just who's most popular right so does an aquarium company or any other company do they spend their money on marketing dollars or do they spend their money on research and development yeah and it's hard to tease those things out because i mean you see you know here's the other thing like you see I, one thing I've, I've wrestled with for years is covering new products brand new products brand new product companies or categories Day one, they're the best. Like that, their marketing just literally says that no one has ever actually used their product, no one has compared their product, but on the box it says best, just just right out the gate. And you know, I think uh, you know, as consumers, we've probably collectively gotten a little bit um, smarter and um, can can tease apart that market speak. But this, you know, this discussion that we're about to have is like, what if we could just cut through all that? And, you know, what kind of uh, experiments like we don't we don't we don't even know exactly what experiments need to happen. Right. We're just saying it'd be nice for some of these things to actually be verified. And I love how this conversation has a lot of overlap with some of the message messages that we talk about. Right. Like previous episode is like things that make the reef aquarium hobby harder. Um, you know, that's bullshit marketing. That's one of them or not using the right names. You cannot do research if you're calling a pump, a whirly gig or a light, a doodad, right? Like there's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit to make the aquarium hobby overall a lot more progressive. Yeah. And, um, Oh, man, what was I about to say? Um, oh, you know, something that I've heard a lot as, uh, as a saying is, you know, anything can be accomplished as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And if there's a, a guy out there with lots of disposable income and is like, you know what, I'm going to go set that up and do that. That's great, right? Like it's part of some of these, I, I think, yeah, it'd be awesome if somebody picked up that torch and did it. Um, but I, I think... You know, it's tricky too, because you're going to get questions on your method, right? Or your approach. Like I, I really do appreciate that there are people testing lights and measuring par and, you know, measuring um, biodiversity, for example, like uh, by, by different tank setups. Like that stuff is very interesting to observe, right? But, and I also, I sympathize in those people in those shoes because eventually somebody's going to pick it apart, right? And say, well, you didn't do... So, so that's the other piece of it is like the method, like you said, could be called into question, but at least it'd be better than just the anecdotal or the marketing that, you know, it'd be something. Um, and um, I think we could learn a lot from it too. I think maybe if we pick apart some of these things, we actually end up with a better product in the long run as well, right? We challenge yeah, no, things absolutely. to get better. And you know, one thing that I've lamented with um, a few of my fellow, uh, I guess, influencers is that we are almost never shown a product, an additive, a pump, a light, or whatever, until it's like late prototype, early production. That's um, very, very rare that they're like, hey, man, we want really want to take this next generation or this new product to the next level. You know, how would you approach this? I'm not talking about like 
just completely staring the thunder and like, but just a little bit of feedback. You know, when I did the studio, I, I reached out to everyone who had anything like it. And I visited as many people and try to pick up as many pointers as possible. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is like the collective, you know, there's a lot of intelligence in the community and the collective, especially if they're using some, some critical uh, thinking skills. That's a good point. I think pulling people in early, um, you know, beyond the beta testing, but just, uh, I mean, you know, there's some complexity around that and signing. Before the molds and and the tooling is completed, like there might be some little things or just even the software, there's certain things, but I I feel like we're getting more off track than usual. And you can have people (laughs) sign NDAs and all of that fun stuff. Oh yeah, all the time. Um, all right. So you want to start with one or you want me to start with one? I I think I, I just need to start with a little mini rant. Sure. You know, because this really feeds into what we're talking about. And it's the importance, the importance of names when you're doing science. You can't do science on a particular strain of coral and call it, uh, you know, Laura's purple areolas. You know what I mean? You can't. That's just that doesn't fly. Right. Or you can't describe certain creatures growing your tank as little wormy things. Like at least just pick up a book and try to like identify it down to like a broad group or like how many of our coral pests are being described as red bugs or black bugs. First of all, bug is a thing, specific order of, of insecta. Um, and the black bugs are ciliates and the red bugs are copepods. You know, it's like, it's not that hard. Just drill down a little bit. And so it's like, that's one of the reasons that you and I rail against like silly names. It's just, it's keeping the hobby back. It's holding us back from being able to make progress. Like first we have to know what I'm talking about, what you're talking about, what everybody's talking about. And then if we want to approach a scientist or someone who wants to do some uh, objective testing about it, then we have some place to start. So that's my mini rant. And then after that, I just want to give a couple shout outs to Adam Wang and Jamie Craggs. So Adam Wang, um, you know, we've been dealing with these coral paths for like 15, 20 ish years. Um, over the last two or three years, he has come up with, um, new or improved, uh, product, uh, I'm sorry, um, pest species descriptions for Montipora nudibranch, for Acropora eating flatworms. And I want to say one or two others, but he's put a name to them and he's, you know, like placed them taxonomically. So we have that starting point of knowing how to deal with it. And the thing that was amazing about his research is he did some of the tests to figure out like the actual life cycle of Montipora eating Hudebronk, the actual life cycle of Acropora eating flatworms. And if he just called them AEFWs or nudies, like that doesn't get anywhere. And then Jamie Craggs has been doing, you know, the real science of coral spawning. Um, but maybe that's not what we're talking about here. But, you know, those are two folks that are definitely pushing the, the actual envelope when it comes to um, doing the kind of research and science that we want so that there's information and facts and details that we can rely on. Oh, see, now, now you've queued something up that I should know the answer for later. Give me uh-oh, a second. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, because I want to give credit where credit is due on one of these. Hold on one second. Well, while right. you're doing that. Yeah, you start. Um, you know, I am a, I'm a blogger, vlogger, and I've been writing about uh, reef aquarium products for a very long time. And I got to say, man, 
I'm incredibly jealous of people who review cars, who review electronics, home computers, mobile devices, because there's just so much less gray area than there is in the saltwater aquarium world. We don't even have like pillars of understanding of like as a foundation to stand on. Whereas, you know, I can watch a bunch of different, you know, um, YouTube tech bloggers and they're all saying similar things because they're running the same like performance bench benchmarks and they're comparing it to each other. Whereas here in the reef aquarium hobby, you have to develop the benchmarks to test anything. And it's just, it's just really, really hard. Did you find your, your thing? I did. Yeah. All right. All right. But that's, that'll be for later. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like, I'll, well, it's, it's, it's in regards to one of the topics that I've talked about in the past, but it's just, um, yeah. Uh, somebody's recent accomplishments made me kind of think, you know, Hey, that's not directly applicable, but it shows that, you know, there's a way that we can get quantitative answers about things. But anyway, um, all right. I guess I'll start. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. So I I ran a calcium reactor from, I'm going to say, 2002 to probably about 2018. And then I switched back to dosing uh, for various reasons, um, which are not relevant to the conversation. But... Um, one of the big things that's hyped about two-parting is the that it's a balanced solution, right? And part the 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 big one is you know the right ratio of sodium and chloride, right? Sodium in the carbonates, chloride in the calcium chloride. The two mix, they create salt. You know, salt water. Your mm -hmm. um, your salinity gradually grows up, but that's a relatively uh, benign side effect to dosing that can be easily remediated. But really, you know, when you look at like the balling method and, um, and you know, the origins of two-part is that um, once you try to remediate that salinity by diluting it with fresh water, what you are also bringing down is all of the trace elements, right? Everything. Yeah. So the salt goes back to normal, but the trace elements go down. And a lot of these uh, two-part additives do a lot of marketing, if you read their labels, that they also add trace elements in a balanced ratio so that if you, well, I shouldn't speak out of turn on that because if you read the marketing on a lot of these, they don't necessarily spell out that, hey, if you dilute, you know, the salinity creep with fresh water, don't worry we've compensated your strontium, your magnesium and everything for that, right? Um, so, but they do talk about how they add trace elements. So one of the things I'd love to test long-term is these different trace element additives. And are they, when we talk about balanced, like can we talk about beyond the sodium chloride piece and talk about like those trace elements? Like are some of these additives truly balanced? Um, now, I know uh, Tropic Marin is one that really expounds on that, and they're very transparent about that. So, But some of these other ones, like I use one, right? Uh, but even if you read the ESV label, the Reef Code label, um, all of them, they mention adding trace elements, but they don't necessarily dive into that. And so I'm kind of curious, like, is there a trace element uh, dilution that happens over time with two parts? Uh, and, you know, I think that's testable, right? I don't think that's too hard to do 
and you could compare to different man, products. You're going straight into the deep end here. Oh yeah, man. Like way down on my <laughs> list. Once we warmed up a little bit, I was just okay. like, um, where, where did I put it? Um, what, what, what trace almonds actually do? Well, that was they, the next one. Yeah. Do? I, I figured we'd go there as well. Yeah. Um, you know, oh my God, this is already, I'm realizing this is a tough conversation because like, we don't know what trace elements actually do. ICP testing is supposed to help, but I feel like ICP um, service testing, testing service providers, they should be continuously doing like internal audits to prove to people that their tests are accurate. Right. Okay. So it's one thing that if you get a batch of salt and it's got an ICP test on it from not like aquarium people and it's got a batch number. So you can like go back and trace that back. And why don't we have ICP tests for ICP tests? Does that make sense? Like, like show me how you've run the standard on this week or this day's batch of tests that we can take to the bank that their tests are accurate, right? So we've already heard this because we can't have a conversation about, about two-part dosing and trace element stability and dilution unless we know that our testing, if we don't know mechanism. that our tests are yeah. actually, you know, coming back accurately about ICP tests, about trace elements and on and on and on. It's just like, it is a Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. <laughs> like, all right, well, where do we start with this? So, but yeah, I agree with you with the IC, with the, with the trace elements. And the thing is like, trying has been around for a long time and it's supposed to be scientific. It's supposed to be science, right? But if you send it an ICCP test, you know what it tells you about certain elements? Oh, you're green, you're yellow, you're red. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. And every time I want to know what that actual element does, either because it's red for being too low or it's red from being too high, I go to Google Scholar, type in live coral vanadium or, you know, dead coral tungsten. And you just have to weed through all this literature. And then if you find something that's kind of close, you know, you kind of skim it trying to find if it's even testing what you want. But it's just like the onus should be on the additive makers man you know what these additive makers have been making so much money off of us for like 30 years how many of them have demonstrated what strontium actually does or what level of strontium is good for an aquarium how high can it be how low can it be well and, and these companies have just they've just been cashing in selling us basically the bottle because you know the packaging of the bottle costs less than elements that are in there and like None of them have done this research. You know, I, will, I think I'll say this every few sessions of retherapy. I keep looking over at the reptile world, seeing companies like Zoomed verifying how much UV, like different types of reptiles need, and then what kind of products produce the kind of UV ultraviolet that they actually need. And you look at the reef aquarium world, and it's, it should be the most technical it should be. We're using $100,000, $200,000 machines to try and give us some readings of trace elements, but they're not like verifying that their machines are working and they're not doing any, and the additive makers aren't doing any kind of testing to let us know, hey, you know what? You really want to keep your zinc at one part per billion. Well, so I, um, let's just assume ICP is totally accurate, right? Sure. 
Um, <laughs> let's let's That's just a long make that rabbit hole. I, I, yeah. Um, no, but um, I can respect uh, going at it from the angle of natural seawater levels, right? Like, look, we chose this as our standard, right? Our gold standard. This reef in this place. Uh, that's a healthy coral reef, right? And we just, we took the test there and these are the numbers and these are the numbers that we advocate for your reef tank. And, you know, we can't tell you what strontium is going to do if it's too high or too low, but at least we can tell you that you're within range of the natural seawater levels on, you know, in this location that we chose as a gold standard. But when I'm adding a solution, right, and it doesn't, it tells me how much to add to raise my calcium or alkalinity per gallons, but it doesn't tell me anything about how it's going to impact my trace elements, but just tells me that, hey, we add trace elements too. Don't worry. That's uh, another thing. It's, Sorry, I'm just, just pushing my buttons in all the no, best, just, wrong ways. That's what I would like to see is like, okay, can Why? I actually maintain natural seawater levels if I do that dilution correction? Right or you, know, you you and I have been keeping reef tanks since it was just two part and then we saw three part and then we saw balling and I'm just like all right well whatever you're just adding to the recipe balling is just two part expanded right but then you have companies like Triton like I'm just going to put them on the spot because they've been advocating for science all along and they don't tell you your chlorinity right? Sodium and chloride are the most abundant ions in the tank. You and I are the only people talking about like salinity drift. You know, how many people are using two part and, and they, you know, they, some people also are very proud of how rarely they do water changes for the sake of going on the bulletin boards and saying, Oh, look at me, my reef tank hasn't had a water change in a year. And you know, what is that tipping point? But why does, you know, a kind of the first uh, ICP test provider, why don't they talk about chlorinity? You know, the levels of the sodium and the chloride ions and them getting out of whack and having salinity drift and how to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Because that's what you're talking about, right? They're raising sodium yeah. chloride ions. If you dilute them, you dilute everything else just by, just that's just how it goes. No, and I want to, I think I think it was Lou Eccles from Tropic Marin. He, mm -hmm. he did a MACNA talk on it and I, I thought it was one of the most valuable talks and I was surprised more people weren't talking about it, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I ran a calcium reactor and didn't do a water change for a year and I did an ICP test and a lot of my trace elements were within range and unaffected and that blew my mind too because I was like, there's no way in hell. I'd love to think that a calcium reactor is a holistic trace element solution you know add additive right because i'm melting some corals but just something in my gut tells me that that's not how things work right those those old mm -hmm. coral skeletons that have been mined up are not going to always be the best source for all all things that get depleted so i was a little shocked that a lack of water change for 12 months in a heavily populated tank with a lot of sbs and i didn't see much trace element drift and so then i'm like well to your point, what are these trace elements doing, right? Um, That's I've never thing. seen calcium, or sorry, magnesium. People always talk about magnesium. I've never experienced low magnesium in my tanks, and I don't know why. I truly don't. I'd love a chemist to chime in on what's going on there. But Maybe just need a lot more Montes, because I find that Montes, again, this is the science part. Like, I wish yeah. I, this could be explained. I find that Montes soak up 
magnesium more than acropora, which doesn't make any sense because they're really closely related. Like if you told me that like um, birds' nests and possopores and stylophores, if you told me that they pulled out magnesium more, I would kind of believe it because their skeleton feels different. It's a little bit more ceramic. It like makes that ting sound when you when you mm. cut it and when you break it. And stylocineella is like especially it'll it'll burn through a blade. I'm not talking about aquarium grown colonies, right? I'm talking about wild colonies. And when you cut through that, it is like dense, dense marble. And um, so maybe, yeah, maybe it's just like uh, these kind of groups of corals just pull out, you know, two to three percent more magnesium versus some other corals. And over a long period of time, um, it creates that that drift. I don't remember your tanks having too many Montes throughout the years. Yeah, I used to have caps. Uh, I mean, I, the only SPS I, I have two SPS in my tank right now. One is a digitata, right? So, um, and then, you know, I am guilty of just letting coralline go nuts. And I've always been told <laughs> coralline is uh, a magnesium hog, but I don't know. I just don't see it. You know, and maybe, maybe my reactor media was covering it. Maybe my two part dosing, which claims to have magnesium in it, is covering it, right? Um, I remember thinking from a visual reefkeeping standpoint that Bionic was superior because of those trace elements because I did see differences when I used it over some other two parts. But then it I've could since- have been one trace element, right? And you yeah. know what's funny about that? That trace element might not have been there on purpose. That trace element could have been a contaminant of like the you know specific like calcium chloride or carbonate source that they used or magnesium source it might not have even been on purpose it could have been the one thing that just that was that your corals were missing that was uh, you know showing it like a tangible effect in your reef tank but i mean but now we don't know used- because we don't have the science well and i switched to a product that's about seven times more concentrated because it's more affordable, right? And I don't have to refill the container as much. Um, Wh- why are you calling it a product? You don't want to say what it is? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I literally don't know. Uh, what's the company? Uh, Brightwell Reef Code. Oh, okay. Um, based on some of the chemistry calculators online, it was like, oh, you got to add 70 mLs a day of this. And it was like, oh, you only have to add 10 of Reef coat. Are you so using like, the liquid or the powder? The liquid. Oh, okay. Which I also like because I can order a gallon and it's already pre-mixed. And I know mm. I respect Bionic or ESV for shipping it. And then you add your RO to sh- save on shipping costs. But just getting it all to fully dissolve is such a pain in the butt, man. Yeah. So I like that it's just pre-mixed. And the only time I have to do anything is in the winter time. It arrives cold. You know, I'll stick it in a warm bath. But... But then I have questions like nothing in this world is free, right? So at seven times the concentration, I mean, uh, is it Rob Stark of ESV? Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a smart chemist, right? I respect him highly. Some of this um, ratio of, of concentration has got to be for some chemistry reasons as well, right? So, I, I, you know, Reef Code, I've been on it for two years and it works great. I have no issues with it. But, you know, you again, just, I have questions. I'd love to do some You analysis. just touched on, like, one of the most important points of why the science is not being front and center in the reef aquarium hobby. And I know that, you know, certain manufacturers, they'll 
they'll tell you face to face, straight up, they can't like put out their chemical formulas. Bob Stark is, you know, chief among them is like, I mean, this is how I make my money, you know. Yeah, it's if the Coca-Cola everybody, recipe. You don't. You if I teach everybody state. how to do X and Y and Z, um, then everybody else will do it, and then there's nothing special. But it's like, all right, how do you how do you walk that fine line between? Um, actually promoting science, like real science, versus, you know, the smoke and mirrors, the mysticism of like, oh, this is the best product ever. <laughs> you know, how do you walk that line as a commercial entity? You know, I don't, f you know, I, here's the thing. Like, I, again, I'm going to use the reptile guys as an example. I feel like a lot of their basic biological science has been made publicly available for zoos and public aquariums, you know, and, and there's not, I mean, all right, maybe you're making a food or you're making a product, but the actual bio biology that's happening, um, that is probably more common knowledge than certainly the, you know, multivariate matrices of like chemistry and biology and physics that happens in our coral reef yeah, aquariums. I feel like I've it's got a good question things. about that right? Like it's all mathematical, right? It's all calculus or calculus, calculatable. Is that even a mm -hmm. word? Probably not. Um, if your salinity goes up this much, right, then your trace elements should increase at a, a correlative or proportional amount so that when you dilute it, it comes back down. Now, the cons to that is, hey, you know what? It's okay if your salinity creeps up, but if we were to compensate your, I don't know, pick strontium, right? And we increase that proportionally, um, we might get into a toxic situation. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, right? So, but that would be a good answer of like, well, we can't balance all trace elements proportionally because you could get into like a danger zone with some of these things. So we don't mess with those, right? But again, document that. Tell me, like, I don't think there's any secret sauce to like, the ratio of strontium to sodium chloride in natural seawater. And I mean, if you can tell me that if I add 500 mLs of your product, my my DKH is going to go up by this much per gallon. I mean, it's it's all, I don't know. It, 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 where's the secret recipe? It's all just a, it's a proportional dosage of everything, I right? I think there's certain like trade secrets that can be kept secret but you can still uh, skirt that you know pro that intellectual property you can still like talk facts talk science talk some tangible details that you and i want to know but until the average reefer is more concerned with the name of some coral that is coming from a farm by the thousands and the made-up name that's been attached to it in their region which is not the same made-up name that's attached to it on the other coast or another country or another continent you know we're not going to have any advancements um, you know, the, the real tangible uh, advancements. Um, I, you know, the thing about the books, the science in the books that you and I have been discussing is all the same. The technology and the methodology has changed, but the, the basic science has not really been advanced very much. I would like to switch gears a little bit and let's talk well, about let me light. let me say one last thing. Okay, on go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Like, like take Red Sea. I haven't used their products, but I'm aware that their advice on how to dose their trace elements is calculated based on how much calcium and uh, A and B you add. 
So the, mm-hmm. their instructions are, if you add this many mLs of A and B to keep your calcium and alk right, then dose this many mLs of these trace elements. Again, it's a proportional ratio, right? Like to me, it makes sense. I'm not a chemist and some, there's probably a chemist listening to this, getting angry and pulling his hair out, you know, but, and I apologize, but it's just, to me, these are, again, based on the subject, right, of this or the topic, I would love to know more. I would love to learn more. I mean, I'd love to hear people in the comments that are chemists explain it like I'm five. I would love you know, to that, understand. That's a really interesting approach, the Red Sea approach, the Red Sea Reef Care Program. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. But as a scientist, you know that it's reductionist. It's reducing sure. the ratios of what are being absorbed by the reef. You know, that might have, that, that, those well, levels your point, might right? have. Calcium, or sorry, Acropora and Montipora may absorb certain elements at different ratios, right? So it's mm-hmm. hard to, it's hard to like have I know a, there's been a, plenty of research done on like wild coral reefs where they basically drop uh, a, a cage, right? Like a plexiglass cage down on a slice of reef and they measure the consumption, right? So was that done was that ratio come across uh come about by doing that with like a chunk of reef which counts everything in there right all the bristle worms the polychaetes annelids the sponges the crustaceans all the copepods you know but i um, if you talk to some people who actually subscribe to the red sea reef care program they'll straight tell you to cut all those trace elements in half i think i think we've gotten those comments before here on reef therapy that interesting yeah, you know, it's cool. It's, it's, it's simple. It's elegant, but it's very reductionist. And one thing that I've usually said about um, additives, especially non stoichiometric ones, like uh, um, besides calcium and alkalinity and magnesium, is like they have no idea how much you should add. They have no idea. They are picking a number almost out of thin air. They grew some ketomorpha for a little while. It's like, all right, throw some keto grow at it. This much like iron and manganese. Or they grew a certain amount of coral for it. All right, well, we added this much and this is fine. You know, they're just kind of picking a number. But just like the fish food that you get from the big box stores, they say, ooh, how much can your fish eat in three to five minutes? Everybody knows if you feed your fish for three to five minutes straight, three times a day, twice a day, you're going to have a, an explosion in your tank of like nutrients, right? So it's, I think the it's, best approach um, is to just cut whatever they're saying, cut it down by half usually. Yeah. It's like, there's, it's, there's not much when, when it comes to the interface between those products and the customer or the man, you know, the, the folks that manufacture product, it, it deviates from reef chemistry to reef alchemy right <laughs> absolutely it's, it's yeah, um, totally and and that annoys me i guess i don't know I, I would love to a and b these products right and do different tests and see like what happens to different trace elements and if i'm a billionaire i'll set up a montipora dedicated tank and an acropora tank and see if consumption rates are different right And then this goes into sort of like your talk about what do these trace elements do? Like, oh, you have a soft coral tank, add iodine. Why? Like what? (laughs) I I add iodine and nothing happens, man. I don't know. We've been told that forever and ever. You know what happens when I add iodine? I get better coralline growth. Therefore, I do not add iodine because I do not want more coralline growth. (laughs) 
<laughs> let's let's A and B some tanks with iodine, without iodine, soft coral tanks. Is there even uh like what are the observable differences? Um I don't know. I, I'm just, you know, throw coral in a blender, see how much iodine there was absorbed. No, I, I feel like I this know. conversation is really good. It, it, it dovetails really nicely into our previous session on things that make the reef aquarium hobby harder. And yeah. we are basically spotlighting and featuring all these things that we don't really know. Right. We you just know? have the anecdotal. And that's the thing. You'll probably get comments the anecdotes like, that well, when I had iodine, my leather decades. coral looks happier. But that's, again, we're trying to talk out of the anecdotal zone, yeah. right? Because I love anecdotal. I, I live off of it, right, in my hobby. But, again, I'm talking about if I, if we were billionaires and we could just go to town on some of this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. But I wouldn't want to do it. I would tell this guy to do this thing. I would tell <laughs> yeah. that guy to do this thing. I would tell this woman to do that thing. But um, and yeah, before you jump into the results while I'm on my sailboat. The, the, before we jump into a few more scientific topics, man, I really wish it'd be possible for... There, there's always like so many different recipes for like new rock or new injection molded parts or bearings and oh man i really wish there was like an underwriters laboratory a ul or ce for aquarium safety when it comes to man-made rock to leaching to durability you know the g-bow pumps that just lose magnetization after six months to a year depending on how you run them it's like it's not fair it's like it's just borderline um fraud like scandalous you know, and not to mention magnets. You see, I, I've been a fan of magnets forever. Therefore, I know that you have like every magnet will crack. Like it's it's exterior housing. Every single one will crack. It's just a matter of time. You need you need like space grade uh, aerospace grade plastic that is very expensive because no matter what kind of plastic you think you're working with, it absorbs water. Moisture goes through it. And as soon as you get a little bit of moisture on your ferromagnet or rare earth magnet, of course it corrodes, it swells, and it cracks the plastic. And there's just like how many of these products are going to fail within a month to a year to three years? You know, I was just talking to Evan today, and he was talking about how his bubble magus hadn't failed him for four or five years. And I was like, maybe it was less than that. And I was like, well, what does that tell you? And he's all like, well, it tells me I got a good deal. That's not his voice. He, he sounds just like me. I was like, that tells me that it's probably on the verge of failing. You know what I mean? And it's just like you have to do this weird re Occam's razor. It's like you've used it for this much amount of time. You haven't had any problems so far vis-a-vis you're probably due for your calcium channel to fail like it did and cause your alkalinity of a spike, you know? So, um, so yeah, I wish uh, there was a little bit more of a responsibility from the community at large to verify and demonstrate, not just that their ICP tests are accurate today or this week or this month, but that product that you put in water, especially the electrical and magnetic ones, is going to uh, exhibit a certain amount of durability. Because, man, imagine, you know, you've heard the story before. I'm going to tell you a story like you've already heard it before, not even like specifically. Somebody's got a beautiful reef tank. Their corals are growing awesome. And either magnetic mount or one of their return pumps just, just had an ingress of water and it caused like copper to be leached into the tank. And they had to watch 
their entire all of their work of like two to five years however long just go down the the shitter over a period of like a few weeks to a few months because of one like few dollar part Corner, yeah well i said in our last podcast people go and argue about lights on the forums for months on end and I'm like your choice of lights is probably not going to be the downfall of your reef tank. It's the magnet in your sump or the heater, right? Like those tend to be very problematic pieces of equipment, but everything speaking uses a which, magnet. I mean, speaking of which, I just put out a video today. You probably haven't seen it yet. I did. On building uh, 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 a <laughs> $96 Nano. Yeah, that was very conservative. I mean, I threw $30 at it for the tank and the lid, another $10 for shipping. So the actual gear we're talking about. I don't trust that heater, though. I was looking at the thing like, "Mm." (laughs) I trust it more because I've seen that design used in the reptile world for a long time. And you're talking about like big, beefy reptiles with a hard shell, like knocking that stuff around. And just the very fact that it said replace after 10,000 hours of heating, not of usage, right? Yeah. And the fact that there's a mode, you can press the button and it'll tell you how many hours it's operated. That low key blew my mind. I did not expect that from a $14 heater, especially since the best we have nowadays is like, I don't know, like a $50 Ebo Jaeger. That's actually pretty you know, cool that it has, uh, I, I, not a screen, but uh, like a little LED display where mm-hmm. it could literally tell you, hey, it's time to replace me. Kind of like my fridge with the fridge. No, it filter, does. You know? It totally does. It, it has like an error code on it. It's time to why, throw why would it have trash, an error man. code? Why would <laughs> it have an error code on the display? And I looked it up. It's like, oh, yeah, you have to replace it after 10,000 hours. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it just low-key blew my mind. And that was coming yeah. from a $14 product. So it's kind of fun to experiment and get away from the mainstream um, because there is a – thousand you know brown label white label brown bag products on amazon some of them have to be good right some of them have to have some good ideas yeah so all right let's let's get a little bit more into the science all right are you going to talk about lights or you want to talk about protein skimmers oh they both sound good let's do protein (laughs) skimmers i may need a protein skimmers is easier this one though (laughs) protein skimmers is easier um you know we, we we know in broad strokes, what um, features of foam fractionation are supposedly the most important. You know, you want small bubbles, a long contact time, a certain air-water ratio, and how much skimming is enough. But at what point do the bubbles become too small? At what point is your long contact time? Okay, maybe you're pulling out more, but you're actually processing less because you're not pushing that air through, you know, Um, especially that air-water ratio. Here's the thing, man. We've been doing this thing for a long time. Ain't nobody know. Nobody really knows. We just made... Best article in skimming I ever read was Richard Harker back in the day. Do you remember that article? I, I probably would if I read it, but it's, we're talking a couple decades now. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And and he, that was when he pointed out that an airstone driven skimmer outperformed his downdraft skimmer. <laughs> but, but, oh, you yes, know. yes, yes. I remember that. He was all like, what happens if we just throw like a giant piston air pump and use yeah. airstones versus a downdraft skimmer? Didn't his downdraft like shut down? Yeah, he was, was able was to he running shut him on the same down. Tank? His uh, downdraft wasn't producing any more skimming. Yeah, 
And it, his argument was contact time, right? Um, slower flow, more contact time. He even put bio balls in the airstone driven skimmer to, to, to slow things down, right? Slow the rise of the bubbles and stuff. Again, you could dive into the particulars and question like his methodology or like what he qualitatively decided was better. Sort of like dry versus wet skimmate. Like, has anybody really solved that one and said, this is the best to go with, right? Well, when it comes to protein skimming, man, it's part of my DNA. I just freaking love a protein skimmer, you know? Even if I don't necessarily have to have to have to have one on my mini zoanthid system, which I don't have. I don't have one of those. I still want one. I just feel like just like there's like, that's one of those things it's like putting a hat on with a certain dress you know i'm just like boom you got a protein skimmer okay you got a saltwater tank that being said i do not have a protein skimmer on my anemone rack yet because i'm like i want the organics to stay in there i want it to feed my anemones but i've always had this thing that i haven't really articulated that well and haven't talked about openly very much is like a crummy protein skimmer is going to pull out the low-hanging protein Right, the heaviest proteins are going to be very easy to remove mm-hmm. with a crummy protein skimmer. You know, a better protein skimmer is going to take them out faster. It's going to take out more, and you know, it's probably going to you know, work better. But a crummy protein skimmer, even just like an air-driven skimmer on a tank that's never had a skimmer, you barely even need a collection cup. The gunk will just build up on the walls. Right? Yeah, I was about to say. And so, you know, I, I, I love protein skimmers. I think you're just like there's something alchemic about it or something that you just, I don't know, it makes me happy. I love protein skimmers. They're super fun. But at some point you're like, well, do I need a better, bigger, more intense protein skimmer? But yeah, I'm actually really glad you referenced that one, that one right there. Because I've always thought about this low-hanging protein, how if you just had a tube with like a conical lick at, lip at the top, kind of like the old mame uh now skimmer mm, design ones yeah on any tank is it going to pull out like 50 percent of like the low hanging protein and then just kind of leave some of the mid middleweight proteins in the tank for your stuff to eat i don't know i don't really know i mean conceptually yes i kind of do know that uh, a little bit of skimming is going to take out some of those heavier proteins that are going to be nastier you know and and degrade the most um but we just don't have the data we don't have the information because refugiums have turned into algae scrubbers, <laughs> you know, like we're, we can't even like, uh, uh, like settle on, on certain names for things. Um, but yeah, it'd be nice again, just like the additive guys, just like the ICP guys. How many, have you ever seen an, a, like a protein skimmer company do a test? Like show or, brand A versus B versus C or yeah, like Jeff hey, Turchak, like 10 miles is- down the road, like, Ripping on every single, he says, needle wheel protein skimmers don't work. Meanwhile, 99.9999% of skimmers in the world are needle wheels. I'm like, show me. Show me the metric by which your Venturi protein skimmer works good or processes more water or pulls out more skimmate per watt. But we're just, we're people, all of these aquarium companies, and I feel like this might be the, the main point of this session, they're not demonstrating anything, hardly anything. They're just putting a lot of things on a box, they're getting a, a few quotes from somebody who's popular on Instagram, and then they're just going out to reef shows and just pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah, I was going to say, with I, even if you go into it and say, as a company, 
this was our our goal, right? This is what we were this is what we were chasing from a metric point of view or something where you start to understand understand how they designed their skimmer, like why they made the choices that they did, right? And how they compared different designs and said, "Okay, we settled on this because here's why." Um and again, I mean, we talked about this in the past. I had a 300 liter per hour bubble magus skimmer just doing his thing quiet it's one it's one of the seaside ones i had a cha pump in it i had it in a bookshelf for a while i was like i'll just throw it out in my new tank for a while and then it was like oh i got some money you know birthday money birthday coming up i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna buy a new skimmer but the 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 little part of my brain was like well what are you trying to solve right what what is the problem that you're trying to solve and eventually you know marketing and you know the need to have a new toy uh, took over my brain and I bought a 600 liter per hour, much, much more expensive skimmer, the Deltec. And it no, skims great. I know what you bought. You bought a manual neck cleaner that happened to come with a protein skimmer. Well, yeah. I that's think what that's you what did. sold me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was an expensive uh, upgrade, but, um, but I, I'll be honest, I haven't noticed uh any observable differences where i'm like oh see once i went from 300 liter per hour to 600 liters per hour of air this happened in my tank and Not- i knew that you knew that at the yeah. time oh right? i knew but full see- well yeah <laughs> my nitrates yeah, were zero well. i'm like <laughs> it's, it's probably the same but like Man, aquarium companies, just try a little bit. Again, the the fruit is hanging so low. It's practically underground right now. Just do the most basic tests or demos. Just sell me a story. Like, weave me a narrative of how you got to your logical conclusion. And then maybe we can take the bait a little bit easier. But, I mean, every company, talking about additives, Water tests, tank clarity, lights, protein skimmers. There has been nothing done. Therefore, anything you do will be a thousand times more than what we currently have. Don't just show me a, a decent reef tank. Just compare product A and B and C and yours. It would just take so little effort. Yeah, I agree. I think. That's sort of what pissed me off about LEDs for a long time and why I was, I I did try LEDs early on and then I backed away because um, the marketing and everything and LEDs are great and in the early iterations of LEDs, you know, the harsh shadowing, the rainbow colors, I struggled, you know, moving from metal halides. And it was like, look, this is not a like for like replacement. And I was, I felt, I felt um, not betrayed, but I just felt frustrated, right? Like, it's like, you can't tell me these lights are as good as a metal halide. But then things did get better, right? Because behind the scenes, they were still chasing, right? They were still improving. They got better on the backs of all their users. Right. And Not that's what through their own like research and development, they released the stuff into the wild, and then they got some feedback and just collectively, you know, um, aggregated that into better and better products. And, and, and as a technology kind of caught up, the, yeah. the technology was surely was very limited um, to begin with. But, but it um, pissed me off at first, right? Because it's like, 
look, this single unit doesn't replace a metal halide. I need three of these units, right? Mm-hmm. And when these units were like seven, eight hundred bucks a piece or whatever, it was like, okay, you're losing the argument here. Um, but now they are better, and now I'm full LED everything, and I'm happy. But again, that sort of goes to what you're saying. Like we were the we were the science testers, right? Like we were the we were ones the guinea pigs. Yeah, and that yeah that frustrated me. And here's here's another great point. It's like you can't do science unless you have the right tools, right? So the earliest par meters were not even designed to work with like narrow bandwidth LEDs. Right. It was only like four years ago, five years ago that Apogee put out a par meter that was suitable for, you know, broad spectrum lighting and multi, you know, multi peak lighting that we get with LEDs. And then as soon as I get that meter, I do a few tests and they all of a sudden discover an immersion coefficient uh, factor that dramatically alters the par value that you get in micromoles from different colors of lighting. It's like, man, come on, you guys. Even the PAR meter didn't work. This kind of goes back to what I was saying with the additive versus the ICP versus the ecology versus the biology or what I said last session about pH, pH electrodes, calibration solution, uh, temperature baths, and then is your thermometer actually working? There's a, It's a lot of work to really, you know, uh, dot your I's and cross your T's and come with up with a definitive result. It's, it's very hard. Yeah, I agree. It's, and, and I think what, like our last podcast about how it just makes everything harder on the hobbyist, right? Um, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that to this day, I mean, how long have we been in this hobby, you know, ages right and we've seen we talked about reef keeping fads and we've seen some come and go but have we definitively seen something you know like the guy that just does a couple of water changes or does no water changes and feeds pellets and you know has a great looking reef tank and then the guy over here who's running like seven different dosers and all these additives i still haven't seen this huge divide in 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 results Right, where have, it's like I actually have what you're describing. There's yeah. almost a a negative correlation between how much gear you have on a reef tank and how good your tank looks. Like, how many tanks have you seen that have like crazy, like assembled rocks, you know, built into intricate shapes, and then all the controllers and a specific board and all the wires and tubing routed up beautifully? Where's the tank? Where's the tank? I, I see these all the time on Instagram channels, Facebook groups, and YouTube. And then I will always go back and try to look for like the finished, the finished product, like with the, the livestock and stuff. It's almost never there. They don't even make it that far, right? But I think that's kind of a different topic. But yeah, there's definitely a negative correlation between. But yeah, um, I mean, in the sense of progress, right? Like, um, yeah. Um, the technology has gotten better, right? For sure. And that's definitely mm-hmm. been an upside. But I mean, all these bottles on a shelf and stuff, I haven't seen much. I, well, okay, I take that back. Bacterial dosing, I think, was a new frontier, right? I think that um, I personally don't use it, but I, I think there's something to be said for the whole bacterial dosing regimen and, and bacteria in a bottle that's starting to gain some traction and people are able to manage 
uh, nitrates and all kinds of things. And, you know, like, like we talked about, now we're battling zero nitrates, right? We're battling a nutrient deficiency. And I wonder if part of that too is just we've, we've definitely tuned the bacterial spectrum a bit in our reef tanks, uh, for processing a lot of that, you know? Um, you know, so I'll, I'll give some credit there, I guess. That, that, that's been a, a significant, I think, improvement. Like Razor, you and I both have used Razor. It's a polymer. That was actually interesting, right? Like that definitely cleaned my rocks, you know, when I had mm. an algae problem. So I don't want to discount all additives, but I don't know. Just some of it is, like you said, the all proprietary right, so we're, we're, thing gets in the way of the science a bit. Very know? much so. And so like here's a great, that's the great like uh, stepping off point is some of these companies that have a lot of bacterial additive products. How many do you need? <laughs> You're right. You got one for starting your tank. You got one for cleaning your rock. You have one for maintenance. You know, it falls into like a broad category of products that don't hurt your reef tank, right? You're just basically selling an idea. Is it, how much is it really helping? I, I can totally get behind, you know, like starting, kickstarting the biological filter of your tank right? The nitrifying yeah. filter of your tank. And then I can totally get behind a suite of um, microbes because they're not just bacteria that will help to break down detritus and organics in your tank. But why are certain companies have like seven, eight, nine, 15 different bacterial products? Like, I don't get it. I really, I'm like, why do you have 15 different solutions? Are you just trying to micro market to all these different types of tanks? You got the nano solution, you got the fish tank, you got the reef tank, you have the live rock cleaner, the live sand cleaner. Why are those two different products? I don't know. I don't know. And then but they sell a medium with it, right? Which, uh, something for the bacteria to grow on, which my brain goes, why do you need that? You know, but, um, and then factor in that some of those people report aluminum leaching and then others, they don't, that'd be another thing to test is I'm going to throw a bunch of these bricks in different tanks and we'll see what happens. Right. I don't want aluminum in my tank. No, um, no, no. You, all these I, ceramics. I, I, I refuse and, to use any ceramic ever again because I got burned. And it's not a reflection of what's currently on the market. But 10 years ago, I did a reefscape that was all ceramic. And it was a challenging reef tank as soon as it was like two weeks since I'd done a water change. And we didn't have ICP tests then. And I realized that the aluminum was leaching, you know, the aluminum uh, ceramic thing was leaching a bunch of silicate and aluminum. So it was like giving me crazy diatom blooms and certain corals wouldn't live. And it would be like years later that I learned why I had so much problem with this tank. And I won't use ceramic of any kind, not like militantly, but I do not want ceramic uh, substrates. I do not want ceramic biomedia. I do not want ceramic plugs. I do not want ceramic rocks. You know, uh, I do have a couple small pieces of like ceramic aquascape that I've had outside in the weather for like two years. I'm almost on the cusp of thinking those things have been like totally leached and weathered away. But, but yeah, it's just, it's uh, the onus is on these companies to prove that their stuff is safe or effective. And, Goodness, man, besides, you know, certain companies be like, oh, our products are used the world over for X, Y, and Z. There's very, very little of this effectiveness research being done. I'm not, we're, we haven't even gotten into like full on science yet. 
right? <laughs> just just show me tank A and tank B, and one of those is doing better or worse depending on what product you're trying to promote. Yeah, I, I mean, but speaking I do, of treatments, yeah, you were talking about razor, and man, you know, it, it, how long did it take for us to figure out? that erythromycin as a red slime treatment was also kind of good at stopping certain types of wasting disease on corals, right? Flucanazole has been around forever, and but how long did it take for us to connect the dots that it was going to kill bryopsis, eradicate bryopsis, and a few other things? Or interceptor for Tagastes acroporanus, the red bugs, you know, there has to be, there has to be some other compounds or, or antibiotics or treatments out there that will maybe selectively kill monopore eating nudibranch or acro eating flatworms. You know, I think one of the newest uh, uh, Hail Mary shots uh, was probably like Fonamarin. I think they have one that's got like capsaicin in it, you know, like chili pepper. I'm like, oh man, I want to believe that one. I really <laughs> want to believe that one. Like so bad, you know, but if, I don't know if somebody was just a little bit better or had a, a grasp of this stuff, they could probably find some treatments for some of these ailments that, that we experience, you know, like um, I'm still the kind of a newbie at, at using ciprofloxacin for um, treating the consumption of anemones where someone uh, corrected me in the reef therapy comments that that was the old name for tuberculosis, not for cancer. Uh, so shout out to that person. Um, but may I tell you what, the, the effect that I see in my anemones is not like it, it, it's getting rid of an infection. It's almost like there's some kind of crack in the ciprofloxacin that makes my anemones happier within like 12 hours. It does not make sense. And, you know, every time I think I'm, I'm on, you're supposed to do like daily treatments for a week or something, but those are just starting points. You know, so I'm doing a treatment every three to four days. And man, I'll tell you what, every time I dose superfloxacin, my anemones get happier and bigger. And I have fish in there. And I'm not I'm not even using carbon or doing like diligent water changes because I understand how antibiotics actually break down in light and just being in solution for a long time. So there's so much low-hanging fruit when it comes to uh, certain treatments for aquariums and reef aquariums that like, man... There's, there's a whole wide world there for the next generation to, to go and discover and tell us old timers about. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this goes back to our last conversation of like, I don't know, you know, if you're a aquaculturist, um, man, you know, edge yourself into a position where your corals are pathogen and pest free, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's like in the freshwater days, you didn't want the wild fish. You wanted the F1, the F2s, you know, the disease-free yeah. fish. Um, you didn't Absolutely. want the one that had worms that came out of the Amazon River. Um, anyway, uh, you want to do one or you want me to do one? I got another one for you. Uh, I think it's your turn. All right. This one we've talked about before, but I want to talk about it in the context of actually testing it. And that's uh, food, right? Both coral and fish mm -hmm. food. I know a lot of people disagree with us on the pellet front. Uh, a lot of comments <laughs> about frozen food and how it's 99% water. And again, I we're trying to move away from anecdotal, but I'll just say that on a personal level, the amount of algae on my glass 24 hours later is greatly different when I feed pellets every day. And when I just one day of the week, I say, I'm going to throw some frozen food in. I don't overfeed. 
talk to any freshwater or saltwater guy who's been keeping tanks for five, ten plus years. They, yeah, okay, they, they, they treat their corals and their fish to frozen food, but their staple diet is almost without exception some kind of prepared foods such as flake or nori and or pellets. And I don't have all the answers to it, right? But I just, um, it one that one be that that in itself would be fun to do more of a quantitative test on, um, but also just the efficacy of these foods, right? And this is where I wanted to. Uh, I'll give a shout out just because it spawned the idea. I saw in the Rising Tide Conservation Facebook post, you know, where they're successfully breeding copper bands. Mm-hmm. And it was a shout out to uh, one of their graduate students, Katie McCord, uh, who defended her master's thesis. And her thesis was focused on using fluorescent microspheres to determine live prey preferences, right? And it was like, I didn't read, I, I couldn't drill into her, uh, obviously her thesis. But if I'm interpreting that correctly, it's it's sort of like when they put barium in your body during a CT scan or, or not barium. I think they use iodine now, but mm-hmm. um, she was trying to figure out what these organisms are eating by using some kind of thing that she could trace, right? Or, or, or um, you know, some fluorescent type of pigment that she could see like, oh, they eat that one, right? That's my yeah. guess. If I'm wrong about her thesis, uh, sorry, Facebook, there was no link. But it got me thinking like, that's a that is some scientific, you know. Well, I wanted to use a bad word there, but that's some that's some science, you know. Like that's like, <laughs> hey, we know that these larvae like to eat this, and that only thing cord- about that research is that the moment it's like knocking on the door of having a commercial application, you don't hear about it anymore, <laughs> right? If she could use that research to raise bluefin tuna or food fish or her otherwise make a ton of money, all of a sudden, the, you know, the initial papers are out there, but the follow-up research goes behind, you know, a, not even a paywall. It just goes into a vault. Imagine just how much information and knowledge is, and, and science is known, but just has not been published because it's of value to somebody. That's sad. That's a, that's a bummer. Well, it's, I mean, obviously they, they claim that it helped in their um, captive breeding of the, the copper band. So that's cool. Um, but it got me thinking about like all these coral foods and, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard a lot that corals don't really care what the food is. They're more focused on the particle size. Mm-hmm. But um, again, uh, if anybody has links to different articles please, you know, like I, I will fully admit I haven't done my due diligence on this, but I am very skeptical about coral foods, admittedly, you know? I try not to name companies very often, but there's definitely like a fun, interesting banter between Benepets and Polyplab because Benepets claims that their food has no phosphate in it. And I'm like, all right, well, if it doesn't have phosphate in it, it's not exactly food, right? You need adenosine triphosphate as energy, right? You, you literally need that. So, and all food has phosphate in it. So, if it doesn't have phosphate in it, like, is it actually nutritious or are they pulling that in from, you know, the aquarium environment? Like, show me, 
that's two mm-hmm. companies that, you know, I'm not, not trying to get them to put their dukes up, but, you know, those experiments would be super easy to perform, you know. And this is one thing that I had is like one thing that we've mentioned many times and like, how good is food compared to just a certain level of nutrients in the water, either in the form of nitrate, ammonium, phosphate, or dissolved organic carbon or dissolved organic matter? Like, which one is actually best? Like, I don't actually know. I'm sure Jamie Craggs would tell you, you need some of those lipids and those fatty acids for corals to spawn, right? I believe that they eat in the wild just fine, but man, we're not trying to make corals exactly like the wild, right? Because if we did, we would just have corals growing on corals growing on corals and it would be just a giant mess. But we, we need more of this very basic uh, scientific understanding to move forward. Um, at some point, man, all this marketing speak is going gonna, gonna to catch up with us or it's going to catch up with somebody and it's just, you know, we're going to stagnate. Yeah, I'd like to see some experiments on that. Um, and you could even dive into, you know, because it's like, well, is your food good for SPS, LPS? Is the particle size right for all of those corals? Goniopera, like I'd love that breath. I love to wake up in 30 years and we know 10 times more about, you know, specific corals, right? And mm-hmm. their preferences, right? Well, Goniopera's prefer this, prefer, you know, Um and then, yeah, I mean, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, yes, corals can be fed. Okay, but if it comes at the price of having just another import mechanism that I have to deal with export, but it's not ultimately necessary because they're getting enough, they're getting fed enough from the tank conditions alone, then maybe it's okay for me to say, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, I don't, I, I want to limit my import of nutrients because I'm also trying to maintain a proper chemistry and balance in my reef aquarium for everything to thrive, right? It's kind of like Jake likes hamburgers, but if you keep feeding him, somehow the conditions of the room that he lives in will worsen. It's like, ooh, okay, well, you know, does Jake need those hamburgers, right? I mean, he, well, it gets bad metaphor because you do need to eat, but like, you know, it's... It, it, it gets a lot more simple than that, right? Um I was make I had made the mistake of thinking that if I target fed my anemones and my LPS corals that that would be enough, right? If I'm if I'm hitting them once or twice a week with really chunky pellets, um, shouldn't really matter what the what the nutrients are in the water. And I started bringing up my nutrients, and then I stopped feeding, and they were that just made all the difference. And I just feel like. It, it's more of a feel good thing for me to feed them. It's super fun to turn off the flow and just drop pellets on all the LPS. But if you have a large polyp, like if you have a scolemia or, or a disc coral and you feed them a large pellet, they don't have the, like the muscles in their gastric cavity to chew that up. Right. So just cause they ingest it, maybe they're just sucking off the juices right off all, all the exterior. But I, I have seen this before in my tanks and I and other people's tanks. You can feed them a ton of pellets or very large pellets or a big old piece of shrimp. And more than likely within 10 to 18 hours, they're going to like regurgitate that thing, just like barely dissolve on the surface. And you have this funk going everywhere. So I think the particle size one is a really important discussion to have. You know, but just then what because, are these liquid additives like red sea that glows in the dark? Like what the hell is that doing? You know, are they drinking it? I bet it? you the glow in the dark part is just uh, calcium. 
it's called calcine. It's a fluorescent form of something. I feel like that is for us. That's not for them. I feel like that is literally like pulling at our, like pushing our psychology buttons and be like, Ooh, look, you're adding this fluorescent stuff to your tank. It looks so cool. <laughs> but the, you know, I'll bet you that part is just like the lick, the color that's added to a bunch of different chemicals and additives just to make it look like it's not just simply water. Cause it's, I don't know for it, sure. Like I said, I've tinker. I'm not, you know, I don't ignore this stuff and just, you know, you know, turn my nose at it. I've tinkered with this, a lot of these things, right? I have polyp lab. I have, I have the Red Sea stuff. I tinkered with that for a while and I did get a feeding response, right? Even the Red mm. Sea stuff, my blastos, my colostrias, they all open up. But then I'm like, and then what? Like it's a liquid that's diluted into the tank volume and what is it doing? Like, I don't know. I, I would love to, again, I get it, proprietary, trademark, secrets, but it's like, well, how did you guys come up with this glow in the dark formula and what is your basis for it doing something right and i watch their videos hard i watch all their videos on youtube and there's nothing there to like chew on it's just like and they have that big old lab yeah red sea has that big old lab that we basically most of us learned about when they just introduced their new coral dip that's another one that's another one i'd love to see like you know a category that i'd love to see like really dove into what how do these different coral dips compare and when you look at the you know the marketing the messaging for what they call it dip x um it just kind of sounds like oh yeah you were looking i was looking at the uh, uh the testimonials and i was like oh yeah i love the way it smells you know and someone said something about pine saw i'm like did they basically just recreate revive and coral rx don't risk it dip it like come on man they have this huge lab like just show us tank a we fed uh reef nutrition ab plus this tank we fed brand a this tank we fed brand b this tank we fed live phytoplankton look at the startling difference it's not that hard you don't even have to like give us like actual data on the growth just show us how you treated these different tanks probably in the same system but with just with different foods yeah, and we could pick it apart because it's like well maybe your food just breaks down into an, a, an available nutrient and that's why but who cares right just show me this coral grew more than this coral that'd be awesome i would love that yeah absolutely all right i i got one more but if you got uh if you got another i have one big one that i've just been avoiding because it's just such all right let's save track. yours for last because mine i okay. think is short uh, right. Chemical warfare. Ooh. <laughs> that crap comes up all the time. Oh, well, the reason your SPS are doing bad is because you have a large leather coral. Okay. Mm. And maybe they're right. I'd love to see some research on different soft corals, the amount of chemical warfare they produce, the impact it has to corals, whether carbon removes it, whether protein skimming removes it, whether it's actually a problem to begin with or just something that people have repeated since That's the dawn the of time. That's the kind of information that was propagated in, you know, let's just say the early days of reef keeping when people's tanks probably had a lot more soft corals and a lot more macro microalgae and you had a lot of these terpenoids in the water and like okay, all right yeah if you have a a tank dominated by sarcophyton and nephthias and derbesia algae and your water's like physically yellow physically, <laughs> not even visually it's, a, it's like physically yellow yeah and you try to add a stony coral in there yeah maybe he might not love that but those are extreme examples that i, I don't think reflect the environment that our corals are trying to grow in today. 
you know, I have no doubt, you know, in a laboratory setting, it's kind of like the reverse science argument, right? It's like the LD50, you expose, you know, critter organism A to this compound at this crazy level, but then your headline just says, oh, you know, ivermectin treats, you know, COVID or something, right? It's like, all right, yeah, maybe if you add enough ivermectin to an empty, like, colony of of uh coronavirus yeah all right maybe that'll kill it but so will milk right if you add enough milk uh, you know i'm just i'm just i'm just reaching out there but um but yeah i don't know and you hear these things get repeated over and over and over and they might have been true 30 years ago when people's tanks were dominated by a completely different population of corals but man i've almost I mean, in the last 10 years, I've only seen like two or three tanks that were just so soft coral heavy that I looked at it and like, ooh, that might not be a great place to just plop an acro. Yeah, I would love to just learn more about, even about terpenoids, right? I mean, um, but the whole chemical, I mean, I, I heard people bring up like the the very fluorescent green sinularias, right? Like, oh, those those are notorious for chemical warfare. That That big green... Palau, you know, Nephthi or whatever they want to call it these days. That's that's your problem. And I'm like, where's that? Like, really? Like, did somebody do some quantitative or chemical analysis? Is is or is it just because that coral glows in the dark? So you probably just think it's a toxic thing, you know? Confirmation um, bias, man. You just see it over and over and over again. And I think that's what has led people to believe or want to believe, right? This just desirable um, facts. People, you you want things to be true. Like, well, you have red bugs in your tank. Um, all right, now to drag face pipefish. That's just going to magically solve it. Flatworms, as spring around damselfish. You got vermitids. Um, bumblebee snails will do it. We actually got a comment on our last session about um, someone was saying that bumblebees just d- did not interact with his large population of vermitids at all. <laughs> I'm just like, they're pretty yeah, though. That kind of sounds right. We've had vermi- you know, b- bumblebees in the aquarium hobby for a long time, and they're just ornamental and they're just kind of there. I'm not quite sure exactly what they eat. Um, but if they did something to vermitids, I think someone would have noticed, you know, a tangible connection long before now. Yeah. And I mean, with the chemical thing, like if it's true, what re- what is the most effective counter to it, right? Is it just some carbon and you're good? Is it protein skimming? I, I have a ton of softies and I have SBS and I just have never encountered this issue. And I'm not the greatest. I used to not be the greatest guy about water. I see changes. more warfare between my soft corals. I'm talking about See, you brought touch. that up, and that that really got me curious. I would love to. Dude, well, Capnella is—it's so—it's the strangest thing. I have this Capnella that will sting other Capnellas that will sting other Sarcophytans. I'm like, how do you win? Why? Why do you win? You have smaller, weaker, limper polyps, and that Sarcophytan's got big, beefy, chunky polyps that I can really see. How is it that you're winning against a Sarcophytan or a Sinularia? I don't. I don't know. I don't know, but I have enough big soft corals to be like, it's weird to see soft uh, coral warfare between octocorals. That's, that's one that just takes me by surprise every single time. And that's where we could learn more too, right? Is uh, like we, we've, we know about uh, sweeper tentacles and, and, and stony corals stinging the crap out of each other. But like, I feel like the soft coral realm and their competition for space, maybe it's not a mystery. It's just maybe the, 
the scientific documents and the abstracts. I just haven't, you know, paid enough attention or done due diligence there. But it's just um, every reef keeping book doesn't really dive into it, right? Like they they no, they that just kind of you know parrot the what's been said before about oh, too many soft corals is going to kill your stony corals and. Having seen natural reefs and very lush, mature reef tanks, you see no indication of of soft coral compounds stunting stony coral growth. I think that it's just, something I'm, that somebody speculated like, hey, this might be an interesting theory. And then it just became repeated and repeated. And more, repeated. I mean, along those same lines, maybe it was actually a researcher who isolated the compounds from wild colonies of sarcophyton and then put this like concentrated mix on like delicate frags of Acropora and was like, oh, that killed it. But like, yeah, but you were talking about the, the terpenes, terpenoids from a wild colony. Like we know that like poison arrow frogs, they don't have to the bring same up, toxicity. They lose their yeah, toxicity yeah. in captivity, right? Yeah, they don't have that because they don't eat the same kind of like fire ants or whatever. So they don't, yeah. you know, they don't have uh, that bioaccumulation that might happen in nature. So there's some certain things that are true in nature, which may not be true in our aquariums. Truth. Oh my goodness, I got the big big ball. How about light? Light. Okay. <laughs> um, Greg Carroll recently asked me if there was any um, publications that definitively showed what light is best for corals. And I literally didn't answer for like two or three days because I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't even know how you would form that experiment because corals are adapted to totally different conditions. You get soft corals, you get stony corals, shallow water coral, deep water. You have broad spectrum, you have blue lighting. And so I don't think you can definitively even prove this light is better for that coral. I think it'd be much easier to demonstrate that, hey, you know, green light's probably not the best. I think I think we know that one. I think I'm trying to remember, I had a light fixture, one of those early LED lights that had uh, green in it. I don't remember which one it was, but I do remember when I would turn on the green channel, certain corals would straight close up. Really? I've heard about red. Yeah. I know Dana Riddle did some uh, good experiments with red wavelengths mm -hmm. and red LEDs. And I, I believe he, I don't know. I don't want to misquote him, but um, I, I remember that study. I know exactly which one yeah. you're talking about. He was talking, he was using tiny little LEDs and he was holding up red against, um, I mean, just indicator LEDs. They were so small. So he had red LEDs against a poslopora and then blue LEDs against a poslopora. And the red LEDs seemed to have like a bleaching effect, mm -hmm. but he wasn't saying that they were worse. He was saying that they were actually more effective at driving photosynthesis. Therefore, the coral needed a lot less zooxanthellae in that region where it was exposed to the red light. And then the coral that was exposed to the blue indicator LED turned really, really pink. Right? Mm -hmm. So some of these uh, experiments that you would want to do, um, if you put a bunch of red light of your corals and they you know, got really pale, that doesn't mean it's worse light for them. Right, it just means it might be more photosynthetic. It's able to do more with less. Right, it does so more work really. with less, which doesn't make any sense because blue light is more energetic. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 easier to just like dispel the wavelengths that don't work. Yeah, I know, I know there was some work on um, infrared LEDs. Mm 
This was funny because it was based off of science because there's like a field effect in crops where certain wavelengths of infrared light uh, stimulated them to grow in a particular way. I don't recall exactly, but if you know anything about infrared light is that it does not go through water. It, you know, obviously there's different wavelengths of infrared. Some infrared can go through water, but most of it bounces off the water. That's why when you're pointing your infrared temperature gun at your tank, you're literally measuring the, the temperature of the glass because you can't really, infrared doesn't penetrate materials, uh, especially water that way. So I think it's easier to just dispel some of the wavelengths that don't help than the ones that do. But then if you have a coral that's acclimated to red light, it's gonna do better on red light than a coral that's acclimated, acclimated under blue light and vice versa. I have a theory that I can't prove, but yeah, anyway, uh, that sort of, touches on what you're saying. And that's the fact that, um, so there's an argument that white light, which has more reds and greens, right? Means you fight more nuisance algae, right? So that's, there's that argument that a, a tank that's more on the bluer spectrum um, is easier to manage with corals. You don't deal with less uh, algae issues, but um, okay, you're a freshwater planted guy. There's two approaches to planet tanks. One is a crap ton of light, but then you have to add a crap ton of CO2 in order for the plants, desirable plants, to be able to outcompete the algae, right? The other way is the low-tech method where you only go to like, I think they say like one to two watts a gallon. And basically, you leverage the adaptability of your plants to deal with less than ideal par. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it has a competitive advantage over the algae. So my take on algae is algae, algae's competitive advantage takes over when there's an excess of nutrients or an excess of light, right? So in a way, I kind of wonder if blue lit tanks, the Windex tanks are sort of like the low light planet tanks, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So it's, it's this obsession with par but I think you're kind of leveraging the adaptability of those corals to deal with uh, a more narrow band of, of photosynthesis, right, of, of uh, available wavelengths. And that just gives it that competitive advantage over algae. But does that mean it's the best light? <laughs> I mean, I know enough about PAR to know that it's I don't even really know where you would start to answer some of these questions. I feel like it'd be, again, it'd be easier to start discounting certain wavelengths of light that are not useful or that are detrimental as far as like growing nuisance algaes versus corals and other things. Um, But one thing that, you know, less uh, philosophical uh, part, it would be, you know, I've always said this about like, um, you know, high energy blue light and near UV light is that there's one subset that shows those colors and there's maybe like an overlap of that, those wavelengths that stimulates the fluorescent protein, you know, colors and stuff. You know, there's a lot of overlap between those two, but where does it end? You know, how much does UV really, really matter? I, I don't know the answer, but this is where, <laughs> what this whole conversation is about, like, man, I wish the scientists would really uh, uh, take a look at uh, captive aquarium ecosystems. The one thing that I do believe is really important 
that hasn't been talked nearly enough. I mean, it's been brought up a little bit, but not nearly enough is people are, people always ask me, what is your, what is your light program? And I'm like, do you know how long it would take me to write that out? Which wavelength I've run for how long at what intensity at what times times six, seven, 10 different color channels. Like, what do you want me to do here? <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer this in like a sentence, but one thing that is super important is daily light integral versus just single points of par. So DLI is used a lot for like crops. You can get like a small DLI meter for, I don't know, like 30, 40 bucks, put it out in your field and you know exactly how much energy is hitting your crops throughout a season. And I feel the same way about reef tanks. It's less about what is that single point par value than the total number of photons hitting your coral every day. And, you know, we are so far away from beginning to have those kind of conversations because we can't even agree what on what a refugium is or what specific coral names are, you know, and I'm just like, everybody's, you know, this is where the units for par really come in. Micromoles is a specific number and it hits a square meter every second. Boom. There's, there's your par value. And then if you take the, the integral of the day, you can literally count up the number of photons that are hitting your coral or a given coral. If it was a square meter, you know what I mean? And then you would have a beautiful, nice round number. And instead of asking, what's your program? You'd be like, oh, what's your DLI? How many photons hit your coral every single day? Boom. There you go. That's the real answer. And I, I remember seeing like a really brainy presentation in person um, about coral spawning. And this guy took the DLI of corals in different habitats around the world and they always spawned after they re reached a certain threshold right it's just like filling up your gas tank they got enough energy through the season and then the temperature or lunar cues uh triggered them and boom they're ready to spawn it was it was like one of the most magical pieces of science i've ever seen that's awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> and again, uh, shout out to the planet guys. They they would advocate that if you had lower budget lighting, just increase your um your uh time that your lights are on, right? You're sorry, yeah, your photo period. Um and then the last thing that makes it really hard, this is pretty much my last point. The the one the last thing that makes it very hard to understand um the multidimensional question of like what kind of light how long how strong which coral is the zooxanthellae living inside of our corals and we do not know we do not know that and you know hopefully with um better access to tools the likes of which uh, aquabiomics is uh, offering we should be around the corner from being able to send in a small sample of coral and knowing which zooxanthellae is inside of it, because it's not the corals that are light sensitive per se, right? It's the symbiodinium, the dinoflagellates inside of them that are doing all the heavy lifting. They're the ones that's reacting to the stuff. And the thing is, if you have a very large coral, you can have one type of zooxanthellae on the top, another one on the side, and another one on the bottom because they're all suited to different things and it's, you know, small little ecosystems. And I think with that, man, I, <laughs> we've gone off the deep end of like, <laughs> what can science actually answer for us? Yeah. I mean, I, I, 
the the lighting pissing contests are good in the sense that they probably will improve the technology and and push innovation. So that's good, but I I feel like it's also sort of uh, pointless. I mean, I think I think most you know most of the lights sort of like you know like uh, I'm trying to get a. a I don't know. I don't have a good example, but most of the lights will work just fine. Um, mm-hmm. Pick one you like. <laughs> you know, it's I mean, very hard. Sometimes to it's under- the user light. interface that's more important, right? It's like, oh, I like the app. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's um, it's very hard to underlight corals these days. Yeah. Although I'm trying with my cheapo Amazon lights, <laughs> I found a 10 watt light that didn't quite work. It looked, it looked good on paper promising. And, I was, uh, and then, yeah. and then I put it on and I put the corals underneath. I'm like. Ooh. What? <laughs> I feel like my cell phone LED is brighter than that thing. That was weird. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I could switch out those LEDs for something much better, and it would be a lot less crappy for twenty five dollars. Yeah. Well, that was a, that was kind of an interesting surprise. I had I had big hopes for that one, but um, but yeah, I, I feel like um, if we could all collectively just get a little bit more scientific and have some of these discussions, um, we could you know move the needle in terms of what we can take to the bank or what we really, really, really know. Yeah, and I mean. It's a wish list, I'm, or wishful thinking is the word I'm looking for. Um, it'd be awesome to show, have manufacturers and additive companies be like, well, here's here's our logic, right? Here's how we came up with this. We're not going to share the formula, but just here's how we attacked the problem, right? Like the problem is we want to feed corals. Okay, well, here's how we came to be where we're at. Um, and yeah, I mean, if anybody that's listening has access to some good abstract scientific abstracts on some good things that are related to these topics i'd love to read them because i you know we we talk about recommending reef books and i'd say the one fault i have with all the reef books is that um sometimes they don't dive into that stuff as much some of them do i mean a lot of these books actually have uh in the back right the the different abstracts or scientific um articles Abstracts being the summary, of course. Citations. They used to have a lot more citations. A lot of citations, yes. Reef Aquarium articles used to be loaded with citations. Yeah. I mean, you can look at FAMA at the very end of the articles in the mid, or, you know, in the 80s, 90s. You go to the bottom, there'd be like three, five, 12 references. So you could go like search for whatever it is they were saying and dig into whatever that research was. And now it's not, no. That's it doesn't help that a lot of it. that is behind a paywall too, right? Some of these places where you want to oh, just Sci-Hub is up. your friend, man. If, if if it's less than a month, it's more than a month old, you will find it on Sci-Hub. I use Sci-Hub like almost For every free? single day. Oh, Sci-Hub. Uh, well, I'm not going to get it all, all into it, but it's just a collective of, of researchers. I've made the, the papers available and you go oh, to cool. Sci-Hub.se sci-hub.se and they're constantly changing domains because they keep getting like shut out by different countries from being uh, hosted okay. in their country. <laughs> Never mind. But no, Sci-Hub <laughs> has been my jam for like two to three years to get behind those paywalls. And here's the, here's one little secret that's not so secret. Every researcher of those papers, there's nothing keeping them from sharing that paper with you. All they have to do is answer the email and re- respond, you know, send you the PDF. And they are usually more than happy that someone gives a, a hoot about the research that they are doing. Right. So just because it's published and it's behind, it's on a paywall, 
that ha- does not preclude them from sharing the paper directly with anyone. So if you're doing research on any of these topics we're talking about, go to Google Scholar and you find the author. At the very least, it'll give you their email and you just email them up. And I mean, that is part of their job is to share the science that they do. Yeah, I I think we talked about him before and I'll give him a shout out at the end is that uh, Reef Man guy on YouTube with the uh, Blue Spotted Angel. Mm -hmm. He does a lot of great videos where he takes uh, um, some research or scientific article and, and, you know, makes it a little more accessible, but something that, you know, he thinks the average reef obvious would find interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's nice. It's refreshing. You know, it's, uh, I, I give him a credit for doing that. So, um, yeah, it's like a, a nice little stiff drink of facts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, it doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one from the ocean to our reef tanks, but it's a start. Yeah. And that's all I'm asking for the reef aquarium world and the manufacturers is just to start picking up these fruits sitting on the ground, demonstrate in the most like obtuse way possible. What does your product do? Like show me how it does it just incrementally better than brand B or C. Please, please. <laughs> and your product might get better if the other guy's doing something better. You're going to be like, oh, mm-hmm. crap. You know, and not on the proprietary front, but if like people are testing and they're like, well, this AB solution is much better at keeping trace elements in check. It's like, could you imagine if we had an arms race, an arms race of, of like scientific marketing where they, you know, were one upping each other in how they could demonstrate their product is legitimately better instead of just knee jerkingly putting it on the box and on the pamphlet (laughs) or the website. So. Cool, man. Well, I think that uh, we, we summed it up pretty well. There's a lot of research to be done. So if there's any like aspiring young scientists listening right now, um, there is a ton, a literal metric ton of PhDs out there waiting to be defended. And so. if you're a billionaire and you can hire a bunch of those PhDs to do some of this stuff just for our own curiosity, that would be great uh-huh. too. <laughs> yeah, and if you're rich enough, just like start your own scientific paper. <laughs> like, start your own forget. university, I don't know. Yeah, no, don't even submit it to nature or science. Just start your own paper. It should be like aquarium sciences. We got They're billionaires like we going to space, man. We need some billionaires that want to further the aquarium hobby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody needs to save the corals, right? This is That's the first step. There you go. Very cool. Awesome session of reef therapy, my man, Mark. Um, thanks for joining me. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcatcher, make sure to rate us. If you're watching slash listening on YouTube, um, go ahead and put those comments down below. I think we're going to be uh, ready for a nice little Q&A session on our uh, next installment of reef therapy. So until next time, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys next week. Talk to you then. Bye, guys.